You are listening to audio from Life Community Church located in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about our ministry or to financially support God's ministry through us, please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org. We will now join Pastor Ryan McAllister as he brings us the message for today. everyone. It is good to see you all here. We are in the middle of our uh, series, To Seek and to Save. This is a series going through the Gospel of Luke. I've kind of divided it up into four different mini-series, and this is the beginning of our third mini-series through the Gospel of Luke. And it actually covers the largest chunk of the Gospel. It covers all the way from chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to 1927. Here's the thing. We're not going to cover everything. There's going to be a lot that we're missing. And so I encourage you, as we're preaching through this time, that you actually read this gospel. That you read through the gospel as we're reading through it, and you can get a better sense of all the things that are happening. There's so much good stuff in the gospel of Luke, but for time's sake, we can't cover everything through this series. To begin today, I'm going to read the main portion of what we will be talking about. This is a very, very familiar section of the Gospel of Luke, probably the most familiar outside of Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. In a little while, we're going to back up to verse 25, but I want to read this to you, so go ahead and turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew. If you don't If you're not sitting in front of a pew because you're at home, uh, you can look it up on your Bible app on your phone. Uh, The U version is a really good app of that, uh, of the Bible. But other than that, let's go ahead and read Luke 10, verses 30 through 37. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. When he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. 
As I was saying, we're in the middle of this study through the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, and I want to give you just a quick review of the overall understanding of the Gospel of Luke, starting with our structure. We have four sections that we've divided Luke into, a long-awaited birth, verses uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 252, is he the one, chapter 3, verse 1 through 950, and now we're in this third section set on Jerusalem, verses 951 through 1927. There'll be a fourth section called Delivered Unto Sinful Men to Deliver Men from Sin, which is verses 1928 through 2453. This section set on Jerusalem begins in 951, where it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. From this moment on, Jesus is going straight to his ultimate goal. What's interesting is that Luke then takes the longest amount of time to get to Jerusalem because he takes some time to really unpack a lot of very interesting and good things, understanding what it means to follow Christ. Remember last week, as Pastor Reed was discussing the cost of following Christ. This is set up for us to understand that this section is going to be focused on what it means to be a disciple. Luke has a couple of different main purposes of his gospel. The first is a truthful history. When we read Luke chapter 1, we see that Luke is trying to help Theophilus know and have confidence in the gospel that he has been given. Know and have confidence that what you've been taught is true history. But also, Luke has this other, other idea, this other purpose to show that Christ is not something new, something different, but Christ is a continuation or a culmination of the history of Israel. But I wanted to identify a couple of other minor themes that are carried throughout. And by minor themes, I mean that they are things that just pop up over and over again. The first minor theme is the identity of Jesus. And that really got covered in those first two sections that we talked about. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And there's a lot of identification of who Jesus is in those first two sections. And now we've come to this third section where we pick up on some other themes that have kind of been running through but start to become more prominent. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We're going to get this over and over again as we go through the different stories that we find, the different teachings that Jesus gives. What does it mean to be a disciple? And then lastly, another theme that I want to cover, and by the way, these are not, this is not an exhaustive list. There's a lot of themes that are going throughout Luke but this one's really important, especially for today, the danger of self-righteousness. This happens multiple times where Jesus points out self-righteousness as a dangerous place to be. So now we come to our story today. Let's start in verse 25 to give ourselves some context to this story. I read to you the most famous part, which is what most people refer to as the good Samaritan. Although Jesus never calls the Samaritan good, no one calls him good in the whole story. And in fact, if you remember your 
your scripture, remember there's another time where someone calls Jesus a good teacher and Jesus goes, hey, hey, only God's good. So I think it's very funny that we call the Samaritan good in this parable. And by the way, it is a parable. So let's read, though, to get us some context about why this story is told. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In this beginning context, we get this really important question. Who is my neighbor? This self-righteous lawyer comes to ask this question. And it's a good one. It's a good question. In fact, it's not the only time Jesus is asked this question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? For us, as we hear that question, it might kind of go by us. Is he like trying to figure out how to like live forever? Like one of those weird CEOs that are experimenting with weird drugs? Is he, what is he trying to do here? Is he trying to create a formula to be some sort of vampire that lives forever? No, he's not asking about what we consider to be eternal life, which is just, just merely living this life forever. But he's asking, what must I do to be part of God's kingdom? Because God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom will never end. How can I be a part of God's kingdom? It's a good question. And he's come to the best person to answer that question. Notice some other things. He stands to ask this question. You know, we raise our hand when we want to ask a question. In the ancient world, if you wanted to show respect to your teacher, and actually this is probably still, I think this is still true in, in other places in the world. If you wanted to show respect to your teacher, you stood as you asked a question to them. Usually teachers would sit as they taught. It was a seat of authority that they would sit in. So he stands giving deference to Jesus, but we notice something about this question, although it seems genuine, although it seems sincere, it probably isn't. Notice that he is saying this to test him. This is a common language that is used of the scribes and Pharisees as they are trying to trip Jesus up, trying to trap him, ensnare him in some question that if he answers wrongly will show their superiority over him that he is not a good teacher. But notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't respond with an answer. In Matthew 22, he's asked, what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Notice how that's the same answer 
that this man eventually gives. But Jesus doesn't give a straightforward answer. He actually does a technique which is very common, and it's actually a great technique when you are being interrogated to answer a question with a question. There's an old joke that goes, why do rabbis always answer questions with another question? And the answer is, why not? I see some of you got that. Good, good. (laughs) But notice, Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The answer can be found. This is what's really amazing about this. The answer can be found. Jesus affirms that salvation is preached in the Hebrew Scriptures. Salvation is not received differently or changed from the old covenant to the new covenant. There is continuity. Paul actually argues this. If you go to the book of Romans, chapter 4 and chapter 5, Paul says that salvation has always been by faith, by trusting God. And Jesus is affirming that, yes, salvation has continuity. That in the scriptures you will find the keys to eternal life. But the man answers, You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Again, I pointed this out as the same answer that Jesus gives to what's the greatest commandment. He says the greatest is to love God. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor. The 616 commandments of the Mosaic law can be boiled down to these two. This is not something that is a revelation or a revelatory understanding. This is not something that is just so far beyond anyone and just so wise. This is well understood. That if you wanted to know what the law was... You had to understand how to love God and love others. In fact, if you take the Ten Commandments, which is what we kind of take as a summary of the law of Moses, you can divide them between laws about loving God and laws about loving people, how you treat God, how you treat people. This is how all of the laws are presented. This man draws from Deuteronomy 6. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is a part of a prayer that is said twice daily by all Orthodox Jews, by Jewish people of the first century, the Shema. Shema means hear. Hear, O Israel. It's really interesting that it says that the Lord is one, and then it describes how we're supposed to love God, and it gives us multiple facets of the human existence. Why does it do that? Because this is an all-encompassing love, a one love pulled from all different parts of the human being directed at the one God. All your heart, all your soul, all 
your strength. You, as a unified human being, directing all of your love, leaving nothing left out for God. Just as God is singular, our love for him is to be singular, all-encompassing our entire life. The second that he adds, and he, he kind of like combines these two commandments together, and your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself comes from Leviticus 19.18. Let's read that. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. From the context of this verse, we might think, and we might be led to believe, if we just isolated this verse by itself, that we are only to love our own people. It says, anyone among your people, and specifically it's the faithful Israelites. And in fact, many, many rabbis and scholars and Pharisees, they described that the love that you are to have for neighbor only really is for those who are loyal, faithful Israelites. Sometimes they might expand a little bit here and there, but for the most part, they narrow it. But notice something really interesting in Leviticus 19.33-34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 1933 through 34 surprises by showing us that it's not just fellow Israelites, but it includes much more. What's interesting about this answer we'll get to it in a second. Let me go ahead and Continue, though. Verse 28 shows us that Jesus says, knowing the answer is not the same as living it. Jesus says this. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Like, good. You have the right answer. Good job. Now live it out. This response from Jesus should actually bring us Quite a sense of dread. For who can do what the law requires? From the moment you awake to the moment you lay your head on your pillow, is there any time where you fully love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, let alone continue to do it all the time, never making a mistake. Never forgetting the Lord and instead putting yourself first. Never disregarding God's law and therefore disregarding God himself and doing what you would rather to do. 
To love God with all yourself is quite the commandment. It's simple, yes. But it is tough. Galatians 3, 10 through 13, and I don't have that up on the screen, shows us that the law is good. Paul tells the Galatians that the law is a good thing, but it's as if we are under a curse when we are presented with it. Because we come to recognize that we can't keep it. It's like a curse has been put on us. When we recognize the law and that it is good and we can't keep it, how accursed we are. This is not because the law is bad. It is because we cannot live up to the perfect law of God. And rather than this dread, as this man gives this answer, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the law. What does it say? Oh, yeah, it says the love God and love others. Love my neighbor. You've answered correctly. Now go and do this. The man should tear at his shirt. How? How can I do such a thing? For I have broken this commandment since the time I was young. Instead, desiring to justify himself. Desiring to justify himself. He asks the question, and who is my neighbor? He wants to look good in front of other people. He skips the love God part. It's almost as if he's like, well, yeah, I do that. I mean, come on, I'm a lawyer. How could I not? He skips the love part. He doesn't seem to care what the definition of love is. He instead gets focused on my neighbor. Who's that exactly? That's the question I have. Who's my neighbor? It's almost as if he's expecting Jesus to answer back, you know, your relatives, your fellow countrymen, your fellow faithful Israelites. And then the man can say, aha, I have done such a thing. And everyone goes, oh, what an amazing lawyer. He's so nice, so good, and so worthy of praise. He wants to limit the scope of neighbor so that it can easily give him something to check off and say, aha, I got it. Look at me. Aren't I awesome? Jesus replied. Jesus gives a story to illuminate the problem. In verses 30 through 35, we see the story that we commonly refer to as the Good Samaritan. I, I would like to rephrase this as the Compassionate Samaritan. In verse 30, we get to see the commonality of brutality. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This first set of villains, they come in, they do their Dirty deeds, and they go. 
Violence and thievery were everyday occurrences and not extraordinary circumstances. In fact, the road that is described as going down from Jerusalem to Jericho was well known as a place where robbers and thieves could easily hide and therefore was a dangerous place to go by yourself. Most people would go in packs. They would go in groups so as not to be easy prey. But this man, he went by himself and he became the target of robbers and thieves. This is what men of blood do. They look for weak people to take advantage of. But Christ's point is not the robbers and thieves. They come and they go, never to be mentioned until the very end. Just as a setting are they mentioned. Then we get introduced to two more characters, the predictable apathy of the privileged professionals. Verses 31 and 32 introduce us to a priest who was going down that road, coming from Jerusalem. Now, something to keep in mind is that this traveler who was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho was probably a pilgrim who had gone to the temple. And now the priest who had served him at the temple, who had been offering the sacrifices and doing the priestly duties, was leaving Jerusalem as well, coming down that road to Jericho. Probably that's where he lived. Again, I I should really help us to understand that these parables If we allegorize them or try to dive too deep into them, we're going to miss the point of the parable. The point of the parable is very, very clear. But sometimes there are some cultural clues that would be really, really easy for first century Jews to understand that we just kind of miss. And so I'm giving you a couple more details, but I'm not going to tell you, for example, what this priest was thinking. Because Jesus doesn't tell us what he was thinking and the priest didn't exist. He's a character and a story that Jesus is telling. And if it was important what the priest was thinking, Jesus would tell us that. But Jesus says that he just moves over to the other side. He avoids him. Then there's a Levite. A Levite is kind of like a guy who was in charge of the things around the temple. They were there to help the priests. They had religious duty, but not on the same level of the priests. And he does the same. The priests and the Levites, you would think, would be people who were well thought of by the general population. But that's not necessarily true because they were thought of as a privileged caste who kind of looked down upon others. In fact, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 9, look at what Hosea says. And I wonder if Jesus may have been thinking a little bit about this as he's telling this story. Hosea 6, 9. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. That doesn't sound good. (laughs) I'm just going to be honest. This sentiment of the priests and the Levites as this uncaring, apathetic class is exemplified in this story. What's interesting is there's this common way of talking about the different classes of people in Israel. And it happens multiple times throughout Scripture. 1 Chronicles 28, 21, 2 Chronicles 34, 30, Ezra 2, 70, also in 7, 7, and in multiple other places. Nehemiah 8, 13, 11, 3. All over the place you will see this. 
priests, the Levites, and all the people. And so, as the listeners, because remember, he's not having a private conversation with this lawyer. He's having a conversation as he's been teaching. And people are listening. The people who are listening, they go, ah, the priests and the Levites, of course, they're not so great. Of course, they're not that awesome. It must be a common Jew who is coming by to show us what it means to be a true Israelite. They're expecting Hero to appear. But Jesus says, but a Samaritan. And you go, uh-huh, Samaritan. Cool. What's that? Samaritans. He's the surprise hero. The Samaritans were kind of a, viewed as a half-breed, syncretistic religion of people. These people who were part of the northern kingdom at one part of Israel, but after Assyria had come and taken all of the nobles and they were just the common people left in that area, the Assyrians sent in other peoples from different areas, pagans, to come and repopulate the area. This caused a lot of intermarriage. And then there were these lions that came and they didn't know what to do about them. So they asked for some help from southern Judah and they came and taught them more about the faith of Yahweh. But these people, they just took bits and pieces and they kind of merged it together with their own pagan beliefs. And also they quabble, they, they had some some quibbles, or I don't know what that word is, it's quabbles, whatever it is. I'm just making up words at this point. Uh, it, it, they had some questions, or they, they didn't really agree that there was more revelation beyond the law of Moses. And so they only really accepted the five books of Moses. They also really didn't believe that the, the, the temple in Jerusalem was the legitimate temple. They went all the way back to when uh, the temple at Shiloh had been made. And they were like, ah, that, there was problems even there. And then they said, you know what? The real temple that God wants us to worship in is, is on Mount Gerizim. And so there were all of these differences between the Samaritans and the Jews. And there was a lot of love lost between them. There had been fighting between them. There had been destruction of the temple of Mount Gerizim by a Jewish people in the intertestament period. They did not like each other. In fact, if you wanted to insult someone, one of the highest insults you could give is, you're just a Samaritan. In fact, in the Gospel of John, one of the accusations lobbed against Jesus is, you're demon-possessed and a Samaritan. It's like, I mean, you could have just stopped at like demon-possessed, right? Like, that's enough of an insult. But then you got to just be like, and a Samaritan? Whoa, like, calm down. Like, that's too far. Something to notice, though, about this is that although it's a surprise, and it really is, I've heard a lot of people try to give us like a modern equivalent, and I don't think that's really helpful. I know it's, it's I've heard people say a lot of different things, but it's really difficult to have a modern equivalent of what the Samaritans were to the Jewish people. And so I think it's better to just not do that. 
But I think you do need to understand this. The Samaritans, although they were syncretistic, that means that they mixed other religious stuff with their own religion, they were not idolaters. They didn't worship another god. They still kept the book, uh, the law of Moses, and were under that law. That's important for this story. Jesus didn't say a random idolater. He said a Samaritan. Because the Samaritan knows the law of God. Just like the priest and the Levite. Jesus then shifts the ground of the question. We see this. We see this Samaritan do all the right things because of the compassion that he has on the man. I was going to go into a story uh, that I had recently come upon last week. I, I uh, was getting ready to leave the church. I was the last one leaving, and I heard a car accident just across the road. A guy had crashed his car, and I went out, and I looked, and he, and I'm sorry, if, uh, I'm, I'm going to try not to keep it graphic, but he was bleeding very badly. He had broken his nose, his airbags had deployed, and he was in a bad way. And I went over, and I'll be honest, my first thought was, don't get his blood on you. That was my first thought. You know what the Samaritan's first thought was? How can I help? He didn't care about the guy's blood. He picked him up, put him on his own donkey, took him to an inn. The Samaritan is this hero in the story because of the compassion that he has on him. And so this is what leads Jesus to ask this question at the end. Which of these, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Notice the original question that the lawyer asks is who is my neighbor, me, who am I supposed to treat like a neighbor? He wants to limit his bounds of love. He wants to limit what he has to do. The original question had the neighbor as the object. It's a question of legal limits about whom shall I show love to? But Jesus reframes the question by making neighborliness the subject. It becomes a question of by whom do we show love and affection? A question of action. Jesus says, or the man, actually, the lawyer responds to the question, who proved to be the neighbor? He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. It's much easier to just say that, right? The Samaritan. You got the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan. He goes, uh, the one who showed him mercy. He had to add extra words in there so he wouldn't say Samaritan because it felt so dirty in his mouth. Couldn't say it. Uh, I mean, the, one that, the one that showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do the same. 
What was the thing that separated the priest and the Levite from the Samaritan? The Samaritan had compassion. The word compassion comes from Latin, compassio, with feeling. Here's one of the things that we have a really messed up relationship with. It's our feelings. We think that our feelings are all internal. They're all just swirling about inside of us. But compassion doesn't allow your emotion to stay inward. It actually brings out to action. So when it says with feeling, that means you are doing something. You are having an action. You are, it would, you know, it'd be, it, it may be the priest and Levite were like, oh, poor man. And just kept going. Oh, what a tragedy. Someone should write a law that this should never happen again. In fact, I shall go do that. No. The Samaritan acted with compassion. His feeling didn't stay inside. It came out and it picked him up and it put him on his own beast of burden and carried him to an end. Even allowed him to stay overnight with this man. I don't know what the Samaritan was going to do. Maybe it was important. I'm not sure. Okay, I was like, that is not my phone. What is that? I don't even know what that is. It'll go away eventually. (laughs) Just ignore things. They'll go away eventually. It's a great plan, right? (laughs) All right. So... I'll keep, I'll keep going. I'll keep going. So, the last portion of this is what do we do with this, with this information? What do we do with what we've learned? How do we approach this? So, first, we need to understand, let, let's go to, I, I, must have dropped my last piece of paper. Can we go to our first takeaway? God's law is not a cudgel to beat others into submission to our desires. I bring this up because so often when I have heard this this parable talked about by people throughout the world, is they use it as a way to guilt people into doing what they want the other people to do. Well, you know, we ought to do this thing because the Good Samaritan. You're not really loving your neighbor, are you? Unless you do this thing that I've set up. How many times during the pandemic were you told that you didn't love your neighbor unless you did the prescribed motions of what other people said you had to do? And always with love your neighbor as the reason why you ought to do those things. 
it may be true that what someone is asking you to do is loving your neighbor, but this is not a cudgel to be used. A cudgel, you know what that is? That is a stick with spikes on it to beat people with. It is an instrument of torture. God's word and Jesus' teaching is not meant to be a cudgel. Do not use God's word in such a way. And especially to get what you want. Let's not care about what God wants. That's not really the point of those things, is it? It's really to make sure that I get what I want. I, I mentioned, you know, the priest and Levite going by. I, going by and they, they were like, oh, maybe somebody ought to write a law about that. Isn't that funny how that always seems to come about in this conversation about the Good Samaritan? That it comes down to some sort of policy that people want enacted and in order to guilt you into supporting their policy, they bring this up. Oh, but don't you remember the Good Samaritan? He was nice. He was a nice guy. And he did nice things. I always want to respond with, right, he did them voluntarily, not forced by anyone else. Like the, the priest and the Levite didn't go and get the Samaritan and make him do that because then that wouldn't be a great story to give an example of what it means to be neighborly to someone. You don't force people to do good things. It's just another form of slavery, getting people to do what you want them to do. Don't dare use God's word that way. Secondly, what is God's law for? God's law is a mirror to reveal our sin and bring us into submission to the Lord. God's law is a mirror. When you wake up in the morning, you're getting ready to go somewhere, most people, they look in the mirror, make sure their hair looks good, make sure they have nothing on their face. I went to the gym the other day. I've been uh, using, uh, there's this, uh, I'm giving too much information. There's this thing called hostage tape. It keeps your mouth closed when you're sleeping because I, I tend to snore. So I'm using this, right? And I, you have to rip it off your face in the morning. And I go to the gym and the guy I'm going with, John Beck, he's like, you got something on your face. I'm like, I, I swore I took it off. I know I did. And there was just like a little piece on there because I didn't look in the mirror and I went out and embarrassed myself. God's law is a mirror to reveal how we can't live up to this mirror. Is it the mirror's fault that it reveals the sin in our lives? Is it the mirror's fault? No, the mirror is good. It's revealing to us the truth. What the mirror does do is to bring us into submission to God, to bring us into submission to the Lord himself. Lastly, and I'll be finished because I've gone over time. I stole this from uh, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, it's okay to steal from him because uh, he's the principal preacher, so it's, it's like at some point you can't say things better than him. What God's law demands... God's grace produces. So much of what we looked at here, we look at the good Samaritan, we go, I mean, the compassionate Samaritan. 
I, I can't do that. We look at the priest and Levi go, that's way easier. <laughs> Can we do that instead? But to love with such passion, love so unconditionally, we feel like, oh man, I fall short. And that's true, we do. That's grace, his mercy, his love for you, while you were still a sinner, rescues you out of your selfishness, out of your lack of love. And God's grace in us as it works on our heart to create in us a new creation, it gives us the strength and the ability to be what God calls us to be. We must rely upon his grace. We must rely upon his grace because we have nothing else. We have not the strength that he does. I hope you stay with us as we go through the rest of the Gospel of Luke. It's going to be a good study and there's going to be more, more things to, to glean and to learn. But today, I hope you rely upon the grace of God. I hope you do look into the mirror of God's law and recognize where we fall short. And I pray that we never use God's law as a cudgel against others to get them to do what we want, to, want them to do. But instead, we look into that mirror. We don't try to smash it. We recognize what it is telling us is true and rely upon the grace of God to carry us through each day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We thank you for your goodness. And we thank you that you have preserved your word for us through the ages so that we might be able to learn these things, that we might be able to take them in, we might be able to understand what you desire for us. Your law is a great mirror for us to recognize our, our supreme lack, our lack of of understanding our lack of compassion, our lack of love. But it is also something that points us to your son. Your son who is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. Your son who, who lived the life that we could never live. Perfectly in obedience. And then to, to take upon himself our sin. And to die upon a cross. So that in turn as those who trust in him like the thief next to him on the cross. As he placed his faith in Jesus that day. Jesus in return would tell us that you will be with me in paradise. How do we inherit eternal life Lord? It is to trust you. It is to trust you because we, we understand that we are incapable of keeping your law perfectly, but your son kept it perfectly, and we trust in him. That is how we receive eternal life. May your grace ever produce in us all that your law requires. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to audio from Life Community Church Alexandria. We believe that there should be no anonymous Christians, so we would love for you to visit and worship with us Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org for more information. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you.